Damien Love is a Scottish writer living in the city of Glasgow. He's worked as a journalist for many years, writing about movies, music and TV for publications such as the Sunday Herald, The Guardian, The Scotsman, Bright Lights Film Journal, Scotland on Sunday and the Royal Photographic Society Journal. His debut children's novel, Monstrous Devices, was published in 2020. It's a deliciously dark thriller, enigmatic and atmospheric. When 12-year-old Alex receives an old tin robot in the post, the note from his grandfather simply reads, this one is special. But as strange events start occurring around him, it doesn't take Alex long to suspect that the small toy is more than special. It might also be deadly. Just as things are getting out of hand, Alex's grandfather arrives, whisking him away from this otherwise humdrum life and into a world of strange, macabre magic. From Paris to Prague, they flee across snowy Europe in a quest to unravel the riddle of the little robot and outwit relentless assassins of the human and mechanical kind. The book was picked as a Times Children's Book of the Week. And in the sequel, The Shadow Arts, to be published in 2021, Alex and his grandfather are on a mission to the Black Forest, where legend and life interweave. To unravel some of the mystery, but leaving you enough to discover yourself when you read the books, I'm joined by Damien. So thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Nikki. Can I just ask you, before we hear you read from the book, what was the starting place for this? Was it the robots themselves? Have you got a collection stashed away somewhere? <laughs> well, no, sadly, I don't have one like Alex does, but I've always liked them. And um, the starting point for this was um, many years ago now, um, somebody gave me an old tin toy robot as a gift. And one day I was just kind of looking at it and really struck by how odd looking it is. I can tell you the name of it, actually, if anyone's interested. It's a, it's a toy called Atomic Robot Man, um, and it's based on a, an old Japanese toy that was made like at the end of the 40s or the early 1950s. And I love the look of many of these things, but Atomic Robot Man in particular, it wasn't quite as sci-fi cartoony as a lot of the robots. In fact, it's almost kind of got an expressionist look. It's got a European look. So that got me thinking. And at the same time as thinking about that, I hadn't been away anywhere for a long, long time. I really hadn't been on holiday for like 20 years or something like that. And um, I was thinking about places that I had gone to, you know, kind of longing to go somewhere. Uh, and one that had always really stuck in my mind, I'd gone a couple of times when I was younger, was uh, Prague. Um, so kind of almost without me being involved in a way, like the idea of this, this old toy robot and the idea of, of, of Prague, uh, started to kind of intertwine and um, actually as I went on um, a, a lot of connections kind of started uh, quite organically occurring to me like um, the word robot actually originates mm. from from Prague so uh, so yeah it, it, it kind of evolved and also I think because of the, the kind of style of, of, of the book which is yeah I've drawn like cliffhangers uh, like old serials um, and it begins to, to develop a, a kind of a pace um, and after a while, I was kind of almost running to catch up after the story. You know, the story was really telling itself in a way that I hadn't expected. I almost felt like I was uncovering a story that was already there, if, you, if I can put it that way. 
That is so interesting to hear you say that, because often when I'm reading a book, you can kind of get a sense of what the initial starting point was. But I felt there were so many things in here. Which angle had it come from? Because they did seem to interweave so organically that Mm. it was quite hard for me to think, well, that must have been, you know, the initial idea or that must have been the initial idea. But actually, they're so interconnected. Uh, That's really why I asked you that question, because I couldn't unpick, you know, where it was coming from. Uh, So beautifully do they interweave. We're going to get on to what some of those things are in a little while, but maybe this would be a good point, actually, if you could read us a small section so we can get a flavour. Yeah, okay. Um, Well, this is from um, quite near the start of the novel. Alex has recently received the the old toy robot. It's um, the the dead of winter, and so it's uh, pitch black at night, and he's lying in his his bedroom in the middle of the night, and uh, then something wakes him up. So. He became aware he was awake. Alex lay on his back in bed, eyes focusing on the thin, dim orange line in the ceiling where streetlights squeezed in through the curtains. Something had woken him, gaily listening, trying to work out what it might have been. The room was dark, silent, the house around it dark and silent, save for the slow tick of the clock in the hall downstairs. His eyelids wanted to close. He let them. Seven ticks later, his eyes popped wide. He definitely heard something. A small click, followed by a smaller... Where? Frowning, fully awake now, he's trying to catch it again. Alex sat bolt upright, peering in the direction of the noise. The noise stopped. Reaching out, he pushed the switch in the reading lamp above his bed. The sound came from somewhere around his desk. He couldn't think what could be making it. His eyes ran over the pile of maths homework, the unlit desk lamp, his laptop, the old toy robot beside it. His jacket hung over the chair and his school bag over that. He thought about his phone in his jacket pocket, but he knew he turned it off and anyway, it wasn't that sort of sound. He looked back at the door, his desk, the chair, and there, just visible behind the chair leg, the edge of something, something that shouldn't be behind the leg of his chair. He angled the lamp to shine in that spot, sending long shadows shifting around the room. He stared at the thing, trying to identify it. The small shape remained mysterious. And the longer he stared in the dim yellow light, somehow more threatening. The whatever it was edged back out of sight. Puzzled, Alex stepped one foot out of bed. There came a furious little run of many clicks and whirs and the something came out from behind the chair, moving fast into the middle of the floor where it stopped. Startled, Alex pulled his leg quickly back under the covers and sat blinking at the thing in the carpet. A toy robot. But one he'd never seen. It looked old, like clockwork, red mottled tin, boxy and square with tiny vents in its chest and a sad little face pinched onto a cube head topped with a flimsy wire hoop, like an ancient TV aerial. With a the head turned until the face seemed to be looking at him. Alex sat transfixed. This time the robot on the floor hadn't moved. The sound was coming from somewhere else. Lifting his eyes with effort, Alex looked behind it. There were two. This other one was much the same design, but a silvery blue, and it was somehow climbing the leg of his chair as though heading towards his desk. The red robot stood in the carpet, looking disconcertingly like it was watching him. The blue robot climbed higher, scrambling onto the seat of the chair with awkward little movements that would have been funny 
were they not so weird? Keeping his eyes fixed on the red robot and with no clear plan in his suddenly empty mind, Alex, moving very slowly, started gingerly to lift the bed covers away. A sudden fast made him freeze. This sound was angry and it was very close. Alex turned towards the bottom of his bed where there now stood a small, thin, white robot with a a head like an elongated egg and, and sharp, silvery arms. The face in this one was frowning. Eyes wide, Alex sat motionless, watching as this thing pulled itself steadily up the bed towards him. He opened his mouth to shout, but found he couldn't remember how. He felt it click and clamber along his leg, onto his belly, onto his chest. Finally stopped where Alex's folded hands lay out on top of the quilt, and there with a it cocked its head, frowning its painted frown. Neither of them moved for what felt like a long time. The thing shook its head from side to side. One of its little arms raised, and Alex saw that it tapered to a point sharp as a needle. A thin brown liquid dripped from the tip. And I think that's a good place for me to stop reading. I tell you what, you're good at those robot noises. <laughs> There's a practice. Can we start with robots uh, before we get uh, further into the story? And you, you mentioned Carol Capek as the creator of the word robot. Yeah. And uh, sometimes his stories have been read as sort of anti-technology. And it's a recurring theme through stories with intelligent robots that we've had ever since then, really. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, his story, which is called R.U.R., I think the robots in that are more of a, a metaphor for, like, the the working class, um, because it's all about a revolution that, that, that kind of comes up. But I think in the, the early days of science fiction, when, when the idea of robots started um, getting written about more, that very gradually became the kind of standard warning again. The dangers of technology, the dangers of science kind of unchecked. And um, I guess even before Chapek was writing and came up with the word robots, we've got Mary Shelley uh, with mm-hmm. Frankenstein. Um, but then, you know, you go back before Mary Shelley and Frankenstein, you've got like, like folk legends and um, stories of just the magic getting out of hand. So, and I think anytime you, you, you write about robots or artificial intelligence or whatever you're 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 really writing about humanity and that's a double-edged sword because it's what it means to be human i.e do the machines that we create then become human like the pinocchio thing but the other side of that is how much of our humanity are we giving away or abdicating so you know it's it's a kind of deep pool to, to swim in and slightly unrelated, but this, the story that um, I've been thinking about a lot over the past year is um, E.M. Foster's short story. I don't know if you know it. And The Machine Stops. I think it was around about 1926, possibly even earlier. And if, if you find that you'll suddenly realise this is the most prescient story that's ever been written in terms of technology, because it's all about a society where you can't go out any, any longer and everyone's connected by video screens. And the machine provides everything, the way our phones kind of are beginning to do for all of us. Um, and it's what happens. It's basically what happens when the internet just dies overnight, like what's left and, and how do people cope? And I think it's just an incredible 
vision of that thing about, you know, how much do we give give away and what do we lose? Now, having heard you say that, there are quite a few connections, obviously, into your story. One is the sense to which giving away your humanity is made quite physical and literal with the kind of giving of the blood to the robot or bits of yourselves to the robots. Mm. And then, of course, the other thing is that around this this word that's very important in your story, which is power, and who has the power, who seeks the power, and how they're going to use it, which is, I suppose, coming back to the title, Monstrous Devices. Mm. Are the devices the robots, or are they the plans for how we're going to use them? Yeah, yeah. Well, it comes from uh, Shakespeare. I don't know if he picked it up from someone before him, might have done but when I first wrote this story, because um, it, it took like 10 years before it was published, and um, when I wrote it at first, um, like devices wasn't a word we were hearing like every single day. And it's kind of funny how how quickly the culture shifted so so that devices is now like an everyday word and that, you know, it's, it, means, it means anything. But yeah, no, that is the play. Is, is it these little machines or is it is it the schemes behind them? So yeah, um, I was quite happy with that title. Oh, it's, a pretty, it. <laughs> it's a pretty good title, it has to be said. Do you know, I want to talk a little bit about the grandfather. I love this character and a lot of the mystery in the books is the mystery that surrounds him. He's a very ambiguous character. I thought of him as a mix between a bit of a Van Helsing, a bit of a Drosselmeyer from The Nutcracker, and a little bit of John Steed with his bowler hat and his cane. And he's pretty nifty with that as well. You're not far wrong um, with all of those. When I was writing this, um, like one of my kind of regular jobs, I did television criticism every week for, for, for a newspaper. And um, I wasn't really writing about ch- children's TV, but I got to thinking about the, the kind of TV that I'd watched growing up. And I think there was a sort of harder edged, they weren't afraid to disturb you, to hook you and also to make you think about stuff. I'm thinking about programmes like um, A Children of the Stones and, and The Changes, which were just very, very strange and, and, and dark and had lots of big ideas going on in them. And so I was kind of thinking about that sort of level of ambition, I guess. Um, and you mentioned the Avengers and it struck me that it's actually quite hard to work out who they're aimed at because there's a lot of very sophisticated stuff going on but then some of it's just quite kind of goofy and um, I, find, I found it very hard talking about this book when people say what age is it for and you're like well it's for your age whoever you are asking the question I think I hope that you'll find this entertaining and I don't think entertaining is a bad thing officially it's classed as nine to twelve you know but I think my ideal reader would be maybe someone who read it when they were like maybe 11 or 12 and it stuck with them and um, then returned to it maybe 20 years later and mm. read it again, you know, because that was another thing for me when I was writing this book. Um, I was thinking about when I was that age and how your kind of horizons in terms of like um, culture suddenly start exploding. Like for me, finding out about cinema from Hitchcock to David Lynch showing up on Channel 4 and at the same time, like getting into music and um, the groups or musicians I was into either made a lot of literary allusions and so I'd go and check that stuff out or the people who are writing about them and, and like the NME or whatever, the reviewers would make literary allusions. And so, you know, you're going to kind of piece all these things together, you know, so you might pick up 
something by this guy Anthony Burgess because you've heard that this band's into, into this thing called the Clockwork Orange. And so I, to some extent, I guess unconsciously um, and to some extent very consciously started filtering in a lot of that stuff into this book. Mm-hmm. Um, just these references that build up like, like Franz Kafka is in there and, and every now and then there's there's an allusion to a band which is kind of might be buried quite deeply and you you might you, you be aware of it or you're not kind of thing. And a lot of it was about being that age, the age that Alex is in the book. Uh, just being that age and then just getting thrown into the world, which is essentially what happens to Alex. So, yeah. Uh, but above all, um, I need to stress, it's, it's about getting chased by robots over, over rooftops. So um, don't, don't, don't be put off. Uh, above all, it's a thrilling, it's a thrilling story. Um, but what you've said there is that it, it gives the writing texture that you don't necessarily have to be aware of. You did talk about film, though, and of course there's one of the chapters that does reference a Hitchcock film. Maybe there's more that I've missed, but there's North by Northwest, basically, or it's one of the uh, chapter titles in there. And I did get a sense as I was reading it how much of the visual imagery uh, was about light and shadow. Uh, There was a lovely, oh, it's just two lines put together where you talked about a weary fluorescent light, and I was immediately in the lighting mood of that story. And so much is about snow and black branches and black silhouettes that I could almost have seen this story unfurling before me in it just in black and white. Well, black and white always makes everything look better. I think. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, uh, well, it sounds, it's kind of a technical thing, but I, I, I did try to, to quite a large degree write this book from a kind of cinematic sort of viewpoint by which I mean is there's like you see the story from a, a certain point of view I'm not inside Alex's head the main character it's it's not a first person thing partly because of that whole mystery aspect and the mystery of the characters and decisions that they make but um I certainly did um very much see the the book and I tried to write what I saw and um, I'm very glad that that came across for you Mm, beautiful glowing globe lamps and yeah I was following the light all the way through the, well, was good. the shadows and it, yeah. it was it was great so anyway let's get back to the plot and the story for a moment Alex and his grandfather he is he's allowed to go to Prague to try and uh, put right some of the things that are going wrong with his robot that he's been given which has got certain uh, powers attached to it and it takes them to Prague which is a wonderful city and as as you said it comes together very handily with um, the robot side of the story but we start to learn more about the particular legends of Prague and the golem um, mm. of Prague. Tell us how you encountered that story and how it came to be part of Monstrous Devices. Well I mean you really just have to like scratch surface in Prague and you're, you're suddenly already knee deep into its occult history and it was like very much the, the, the centre of alchemy in Europe and a centre for all sorts of strange stuff and it's actually visible in the fabric of the city when you go there. Like the most famous um, bridge in, in Prague is the Charles Bridge and um, mm-hmm. I, I don't particularly go into it in this this book but there, there are stories that that whole part of the city was actually built according to like an alchemical code it's all to do with certain numbers and amounts of steps and amounts of bricks and 
the directions things are pointed in and and every every corner you go to there in, in that city there are all these little codes and references to just like the maddest magical stuff so once i started thinking about the city i couldn't not be writing about that to some extent something about i mean what was czechoslovakia now the czech republic and slovakia they're places where old toys were made and 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 so you, you know you've got your toy shop at the beginning of that and it's oh delicious i think everybody's seen that monkey with the symbols on so many things yeah. i know exactly what it looks like well it's it's again you know it's that whole um part of europe i guess like the grim fairy tales are, are the most famous and you know things like pinocchio and like the nutcracker you mentioned um you know all, all of this stuff like the toys come to life and it's just that slightly expressionistic folk europe mm. sort of feel um kind of lurking behind the present city and so yeah, I'm really trying to touch on on all of that stuff, but while still keeping it, it's a balancing act between the old fashioned and and the contemporary. Like um, the very first page in the book, I make a point of um, inserting like a reference to like a McDonald's restaurant because the way I'm describing the city, it could be any time, kind of quite consciously, and so I throw in the fast food restaurant. So like like for I think for the first couple of lines, you you're not quite sure when you are. So, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to have the past and the present sort of bumping up against each other all the way through the book. I've got a couple of very specific questions for you. Go on. Salt as your silver bullet. <laughs> Where does salt come from as a thing that can stop this? Uh, well, well so th- no. this is like the, this is the correct use of salt. Is it? Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you pick up any dictionary on superstitions and, and go to the S section, you'll find pages and pages on salt. And it's 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 use in, in warding off evil, and uh, you know you throw throw it over your left shoulder if you spill it, so, course, so it yeah. gets into the devil's eye. And there are many 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 um, um, superstitions um, surrounding salt and its uses in warding off evil and cleansing and purifying. And I can't claim can't take uh, credit that one. No, no, but it's so. very reassuring because I have got plenty of salt in the house, and I don't yep. have many silver bullets. Better with the salt, I think. Definitely. The other one is about grandfather. He's got some pretty bad habits. He smokes, eats all the things that he sh- he shouldn't eat. And I wondered whether this was you pushing against the nanny state that tells us all the things that we shouldn't be doing. <laughs> well, maybe. Um, but I'd like to hope and believe that there are like, kids out there who've got grandfathers, grandmothers who still do all those things, you know. But um, as as he says quite often in the book, um, um, you know, he grew up at a time before we knew better about all of that stuff, and it's kind of too late for him to change his ways now. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, he's, he he has his pleasures in life. He, he likes the odd cigarette and the odd drink, yeah, and sweets, and, sweets, and, yeah, you know, and a full battered piece of fish. Why not? For goodness' sake, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, fish and chips. Nothing wrong with that. I do want to ask you, because things are resolved for the time being when we get to the end of Monstrous Devices, but there are further adventures to come and uh, Shadow Arts will be out soon. Now, my understanding is that Alex is back with his grandfather to search for, we haven't even talked about the wonderful Harry, um, but they're going to help um, solve a problem that Harry's been uh, working on out in the 
Black Forest, another great place for a well, story. Yeah. Come on, tell us about this. <laughs> um, well, one of the things that a lot of people have said after they've read Monstrous Devices, there's a lot of questions that they've got that haven't been answered. And um, hopefully the second book answers pretty much all of those. The Shadow Arts, the sequel, um, basically picks up almost exactly at the end of Monstrous Devices. It's like a couple of months later, basically. And um, Alex, after his adventure in the, the first book, has wound up back home and um, he's living with the consequences of like a decision or two that, that he made. He hasn't really heard much from his grandfather for like the months in between. And then suddenly he crashes back into his life and he needs Alex to help him with uh, a mystery that 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 grandfather and his pal Harry have been working on. And um it leads us again through Paris, this time over into Germany and in, in the Black Forest, which um is as as the as grandfather says at one point, it's kind of where all these stories came from in the first place. Oh Damien, thank you so much for talking to me today. I can't wait to get into the shadow arts and uh thank you so much. Well thank you. In the Reading Corner is presented by Nikki Gamble and produced by Alison Hughes. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please do leave a review for us. To find out about other projects, including an audience with events and the Exploring Children's Literature Summer School, visit www.exploringchildrensliterature.uk. Join us again soon in the Reading Corner on your favourite podcast platform.